0: Real quick, I just wanted to provide a, a brief word of exposition with the text that we use in our liturgy every Lord's Day, again and again and again, because I think that by God's grace, um, in understanding a little bit more of the interpretation, the exegesis of this particular text, it can hopefully make our, our liturgy, um, particularly the point of the assurance of Christ's pardon, uh, more profound and powerful and meaningful in our lives as we work through the liturgy each Lord's day. So here's the particular text in our liturgy I'm referring to. It's first John chapter one, verse eight and 9. So we, we have a reading of God's law. and the hope is that the Holy Spirit, Working in conjunction with the Word of God in Exodus chapter 20 would cause our hearts to be convicted of sin, and that we would then confess corporately our sin to the Lord, primarily our confession of sin following um, a biblical text, often found in the Psalms, like Psalm uh, 130 that we've been using the past couple of weeks. But then, after a reading of God's law, the conviction that the Spirit brings, and then a confession of our sin, there's an assurance of Christ. Pardon. And then we no longer confess our sin, but rather we complete the fullness of Christian confession, which is not only to confess sin, but to confess faith. Right? That's what we do as Christians is we turn from sin in confession and repentance, and we turn to Christ. Remember the parable that Jesus tells of the man who uh, was demon-possessed, a demoniac. And he says that if the demon is expelled he goes through arid places waterless places but eventually if the house the temple that man in which the demon once resided if that man his house is not filled with something namely someone else then the demon after going around through arid places eventually will come back and once again inhabit the man bringing with him along seven other demons worse than himself and Jesus concludes the principle of the parable by saying and And the latter state of the man will be worse than the former. And so what we see in that parable, many things, but one in particular, is that it's not just enough to expel wickedness, but we must also fill ourselves by God's grace with righteousness. So it's not enough merely to repent and turn from sin, but we also want, by the grace of God, to exercise faith and turn to Christ. And repentance and faith are really just two sides of the same coin. They're like two pedals on a bicycle. You really cannot truly repent, right? There is such a thing as worldly regret, worldly grief, worldly remorse. Judas had that, right? Judas, he gave back the 30 pieces of silver, he turned it back. He threw it on the floor of the temple and said, I, I don't want anything to do with this. And then he goes off and he and he hangs himself in remorse. And the Bible says that his his bowels gushed out, his, his stomach was split open and gushed out. And that that became this field of blood. And Judas was not redeemed. Judas is, in fact, in hell even though he greatly regretted his decision to betray the Son of God. So there is a way to experience deep and profound regret, remorse, in such a way that it it, it does not lead to repentance. Godly sorrow is what ultimately leads to repentance and therefore life. Whereas worldly sorrow, worldly regret, Judas is an example of this. Esau would be an example. Esau cried. Right. Well, crying that 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 always means that you're genuine. No, (laughs) no, Uh, no. Esau cried. He sought the blessing with tears, but he could not is what the Bible says. He could not repent, meaning it's not just that he was unwilling. He was unable. Repentance is granted by God. Repentance, like faith, are gifts given by God to his children, to his children. People And so all that being said, we want to turn from sin and turn in faith to Christ. We want to expel the demons, expel wickedness from our life by grace, but also fill our lives, fill our hearts, our affections, our thoughts, our actions, everything that we are with Christ. With his word, we want to meditate on his law day and night. And so all these things being said, we we want to confess our sin, but then we confess our faith. But in between those two portions of our liturgy, each Lord's Day, a confession of sin and a confession of faith, we have this assurance of pardon because it's the assurance of Christ's forgiveness the gospel that atones for our sin, that's the fuel for our confession of faith, our trust in the Lord Jesus and our devotion to him, our commitment to be obedient to all that he says, because he is the God who forgives his people. He is the one who atones for our sin. So the text that we use each Lord's Day in, in reference to Christ's assurance of forgiveness, again, is 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. It says that if we say we have no sin, that's a problem. There's no such thing in this life as a state of sinless perfection. Now, there is such a thing by God's grace. Not only is it possible, but it is promised that we will grow in righteousness. So the Christian is being sanctified. The Christian is growing in righteousness. But the Christian in this life will not reach a a state of perfect, sinless perfection. And so um, we recognize that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But... And here's the promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the reason why this portion of your liturgy is referred to, it is titled an assurance of pardon, is because pardon itself, right? The key is assurance. Pardon itself, just objective forgiveness from God, does not come. And this is what I don't want us to, to miss. That does not come on a weekly basis on the Lord's day. Do you know when when the objective reality of forgiveness comes? The moment that we're born again. So so when when John is saying, if, right? That's a conditional phrase, if, if we do this thing, he will do that other thing. If we do this, he will respond with that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What we don't need to understand, the way that we don't need to interpret that particular verse, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, is we don't need to think that there's some kind of works-based equation or formula for the Christian that, that well, I mean basically what, what that would be is Roman Catholicism. Right. That, that's the idea that, you know, you that's why you have kind of last rites and all, all these different things like right before I die, I, I, I need to have the priest come in and absolve me of sin. And, and the closer he, you know, the, the, the shorter that gap between the priest coming in and me breathing my last breath, the better. Um, that's not Protestant. That is not biblical Christianity. Okay, So what we believe is that Christ, at the moment of conversion, Christ forgives the Christian of all their past sins, present sins, and future sins. So when Jesus saved you, and when he caused you to be born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, when he gave you a new heart, remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and endowed you with the gifts, that double-sided coin of repentance and faith. At that very moment, you were forgiven of all the sins you had ever committed and all the sins you ever would commit. So then what are we doing on the Lord's day? Well, what we're doing is the assurance of pardon. When 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, I believe, I've done a deep study through 1 John, and I even wrote a book on 1 John. It's the only book I've written. I don't have like hundreds of books. But I, I wrote a book on 1 John and the assurance of salvation, which deals with the assurance of pardon, forgiveness. What, what I believe that John is getting at is this. There is There is a distinction between the objective reality of forgiveness, which does take place chronologically at an actual moment in history, namely the moment that you're converted, the moment that you are saved. But there's also such a thing as the subjective reality of forgiveness, meaning the feeling of being forgiven, the assurance of being forgiven, a confidence that the forgiveness that you objectively already have if you're in Christ a reminder and an assurance, a confidence, a boosted confidence that I am, in fact, forgiven. That, that there is no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That I really have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Right? There's a way of a parent, for instance, forgiving their child, but it is still of the utmost necessity that that child come and be reconciled to their parent. So I've already forgiven you. I love you. I don't love you any less in this moment of disobedience than I than I did the moment before or the moment after. We're, I love you. I forgive you. But there's such a thing as being in relational fellowship, being in fellowship, reconciliation. And so in an objective sense, we have been reconciled to God at the moment of salvation and forgiven of all our sins, past and future, at the moment of salvation. But what happens when we confess our sins is there is... There is a renewed sense of confidence and assurance that we're actually in fellowship with God and that he really does forgive us. Does he objectively forgive us at the moment of confession? No. He objectively forgives us of all our sins at the moment of salvation. But there's an assurance, a reassurance, we might say, where the Lord speaks to us. Lovingly, relationally, fatherly, through His Word and by the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us when we confess our sins, reminding us that we're forgiven in Christ. Assuring us that we've been cleansed from all our unrighteousness. He's reminding and assuring and boosting our confidence that we really are the children of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He cries out, Abba, Father. He It's the inward testimony, witness of the Holy Spirit that reminds us of our adoption. God is our father. We are in fellowship with him and our sin no longer keeps us away. It's been dealt with. It's been atoned for. It is finished. And so that's what we're doing when we look at 1 John chapter 1, 8 and 9. We're not saying that when you walked in this morning, you were not in reconciliation. You were not in fellowship with God. But then you did this thing. You said these words, and if you had the perfect pronunciation and inflection, you know, if you cast the spell correctly, then it produces this outcome. No, 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 no. It's an assurance of pardon, objectively pardoned and forgiven at the moment of salvation, all your past sins and all your future sins. But it still matters, not just objective forgiveness, but the subjective realities of forgiveness. It matters that we feel forgiven. It matters that we are assured and reminded and confident that we are forgiven. And that happens not just in an objective sense at the moment of conversion, but in a subjective sense through an ongoing relationship with Christ that includes prayer that includes confession, that includes trust, all these things. And so that's what we're doing. This assurance of pardon. Not objectively, you weren't forgiven, now you are, because the pastor said so, and you said these words correctly. No, 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 no. You've always been forgiven if you're in Christ from the moment that He saved you, but I want to remind you that He is faithful and just. He has forgiven you. Be confident of that forgiveness. And now walking in in a spirit of forgiveness... Let us no longer be distracted or condemned by our sin, but let us now confidently confess our faith. We believe in God, the Father Almighty. That's what we're doing. Houston, we have a problem. I repeat, we have a problem. Our conference is about to sell out. I mean, about to sell out. We probably have about mm, 75 to 100 seats left. Our venue holds about 525 to 550 seats, and we currently have 450 people who are registered for this conference. The excitement is tangible. A lot of people registered because they wanted to hit the early bird rate. We're now at our normal rate, $130 for an adult, $50 for a kid who's 11 to 17 years old, and kids 10 and under get in free. You can bring the whole family, but the problem is not that we're going to raise the rate again. The problem is we're going to run out of tickets, and we're going to run out pretty fast. Again, we've got about 100 seats or less. 450 people six months out are already registered for this conference. We don't want you to miss it. So to ensure that you get to make it to this conference, you need to register not a month from now, not a week from now, not tomorrow, but today. You want to be there for the Theonomy and Post-Millennialism Conference, May 5th, 6th, and 7th with James White, Joe Boot, Gary DeMar, Dale Partridge, and yours truly, Joel Weben Go to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. It will sell out very soon. Thanks so much for listening. But real quick, before you go, do us a small favor, take a moment, and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the show.